Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. And if it's your first time here, we are dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. And we're jumping straight slap bang into the middle of that, into the interwar years, where the first toxic, potent, horrendous nerve agents were produced. Those weapons that attack the human nervous system. To talk about this, we have the world's leading expert, Dan Cazetta. Now, Dan spent decades working in the US Army, the White House Military Office, the US Secret Service, and in private industry on chemical and biological weapons. He's the author of a new book, Toxic, A History of Nerve Agents from Nazi Germany to Putin's Russia. I know you're going to love this one. And if you want to follow along online, you can follow us on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2 and on Instagram at James Rogers History. But now, here's Dan Cazetta with A History of Nerve Agents. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for coming on The World Wars. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm happy to be here and glad to talk to somebody in the blessed country of Denmark, home of fine hot dogs. That is an underrated bit of knowledge about Denmark. They do have fine hot dogs. You're absolutely right. I don't know why. Maybe it's like a German hangover, but they definitely do have fantastic hot dogs. But we're not here to talk about hot dogs today. We're here to talk about toxic nerve agents with hopefully never come into contact with hot dogs because you are the world expert on the history of chemical weapons, specifically nerve agents. Those silent, odorless killers that are ever-present but rarely used. In fact, they should never really be used because they're banned by international law, by the Chemical Weapons Convention, right? Yes. Let's throw a little bit of a definitional thing out here. Some nerve agents are completely legal. I mean, so when we say nerve agents, we have to make a little bit of a bifurcation between ones that are weapons or have potential as weapons, and ones that are still in use in industry as pesticides or medicines. The term nerve agent is a broader tent than most people think it is, because there are a half a dozen so-called nerve agents that actually have pharmaceutical uses. If you're diagnosed here in the UK with scabies, the infection, you'll get a cream called malathion, which is technically a nerve agent to put on to kill the scabies infection. 
If you have a medical condition called myasthenia gravis, you might get prescribed something called peridostigmine bromide, which is technically a nerve agent. But the nerve agents that you and I are interested in are on the other end of the spectrum from these less harmful nerve agents because it's a family of chemical compounds that interferes with the ability of the human nervous system to function properly if administered in a, shall we say, an adversarial way. Okay, so tell us about that. What is it about chemical weapons and nerve agents particularly that makes them so abhorrent compared to other lethal weaponry? You know, that's something I've spent 30 years struggling with because we can talk about morality and ethics, about warfare, ways of killing people, and I've yet to find a compelling moral argument saying that killing somebody with a bayonet or shooting them in the head with a bullet is somehow more immoral than killing somebody with a poisonous substance, whether it be a nerve agent or one of the other chemical weapons. So you're left with a, less of an argument about morality, because if we're going to go down the classical route in philosophy of morality, all killing is bad. So you get down to the difference between morals and ethics. And chemical weapons pose ethical problems. They pose problems because some of them have a tendency to persist on the battlefield long after the battle is over. So in some cases, chemical weapons are a bit like landmines. So long after the shooting is done, the problem is still around. You have issues of predictability. A soldier with a rifle, and the rifle's got sights on it, you can train that soldier who to shoot and who to not shoot. But the minute you let a gas out on the battlefield, it's going to go wherever the wind blows. So there's issues of predictability, and whether that is proportionate or disproportionate, that's certainly an issue. Certainly, if you look at the very beginning of chemical warfare, which is the First World War, which is before the nerve agents came around, the earlier things like mustard, phosgene, chlorine. These things had a tendency to wound instead of kill people, actually. And so the idea that just wounding somebody, maiming somebody, instead of just killing them, condemning somebody to a life of disability, that was considered, still is considered, not really the thing in weaponry. So I don't know where to put chemical weapons on this whole thing. I think if chemical weapons had lived up to their manufacturer's expectations and claims that they would be less banned than they are now, to put it bluntly. So what were those claims and who were these manufacturers? The First World War was really a war of wits between German and Anglo-French chemists to come up with various ways of breaking the deadlock of the trench warfare on the Western Front. To be honest, it's a little bit of a simplification. If you look at the context of the First World War, and you know as much as anybody about the First World War, it's really a, a highly technological war. A lot of new things are coming up. Very few things were absolutely brand new in the First World War, but a lot of things that were relatively new got their first mass airing, okay? So aircraft, zeppelins or dirigibles, fully automatic weapons, submarines, tanks, but also use of telegraph and railroads to help logistics, less glamorous things like that, uh, radio communications. All of these things had really their first truly global airing in an existential conflict. And chemical weapons exist in that context. And if you look at all the things that were new technologies in the First World War, a lot of them are still with us. The submarines are still with us. Aircraft are still with us. Fully automatic machine guns are still with us. Tanks, uh, yeah, all this stuff is still with us. Because by the end of the war, there was this idea that those things showed a little bit of promise. If we look a little further on that, and maybe it would go somewhere. Now, the difference with chemical weapons is it had a more mixed verdict at the end of the First World War. 
you can't really point at many battles, if any, in World War One, where chemical weapons really made or broke a battle. You really can't point to them. Some people argue about whether or not the Caporetto Offensive was a case of it, and surely the Italians lost a lot of casualties to gas warfare, as they called it at the time, in the Caporetto Offensive. But you look at the Caporetto Offensive, the Italians were going to lose that, regardless of whether phosgene and chlorine were used by the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians. So chemical warfare was one of these things where... It had its proponents who said, well, if we just get a little bit better, if we had a better chemical, we had a better delivery device, we might have done better. And you go into the interwar period, the 1920s, the 1930s, there were sort of two camps there. The majority camp was, can't be bothered. It's easy for us to give this up. And these very optimistic arms control negotiations in the 1920s, it's very easy for the major nation states to give this up in the Geneva Protocol, say, renouncing first use of chemical weapons. Because the mainstream military thought at the time is, it's just not worth the trouble. It causes our own forces as much trouble as the other side. It doesn't win any battles. It's unpredictable. It depends on which way the wind blows. Let's give this up. Nobody was giving up bombers. Nobody was giving up submarines. Uh, nobody was giving up tanks. But everybody said, all right, yeah, we'll put our poker chips on the table and give up the uh, chemical weapons. There was the minority view, and the minority view was always, well, we just didn't have enough time and enough resources to perfect the problem. Let's find a better chemical weapon. So the stuff I write about, the nerve agents, comes out of this minority view of Let's try to find a way to make the chemical weapons better so they really are a new category of warfare, a step change over previous types of warfare from before. And that's what happened in the 1930s in Germany with nerve agents. A chain of accidental discoveries results in this totally new category of chemical weapons that, unlike incremental improvements to submarines and incremental improvements to aircraft, is actually an order of magnitude improvement to uh, chemical weapons. And that was the nerve agents. They were 10 to 100 times more lethal than previous chemical weapons, and they were useful under a much wider variety of battlefield conditions. They were toxic through multiple methods of exposure. You could breathe them, you could absorb them through your skin, you could get them in your eyes. So the nerve agents really were a radical improvement in chemical weapons. And fortunately, it was a radical improvement. It was kept very compartmented in a very secret German research and development program. It didn't escape out of that little bubble during the Second World War. So you're telling me that during the interwar period, when you're meant to have the limitations of the Treaty of Versailles, and you've already got conventions on chemical weapons, that new, ever more potent nerve agents are being produced in Germany. Yeah, and I should say that as an accident of research, okay, everybody had an offensive chemical weapons program in the 1920s and 30s. I say everybody. The second and third tier countries all did too. Places like Greece, Hungary, Italy, Czechoslovakia, Belgium, Sweden. It wouldn't surprise me if the Danes had it too. A lot of people basically assumed that everybody else was going to use chemical weapons too. So there was a largely under-resourced official military R&D programs on chemical weapons, where they were working on incremental improvements in the chemical weapons from the first war. But like all R&D programs, these things are competing with other things for resources. The nerve agent program in Germany it came, to use an American baseball metaphor, came out of left field. It came from an unexpected quarter. It came out of, for lack of a better term, economic research. 
If you look at the First World War, Germany learned a lot of things the hard way. One is that it is easily blockaded. Their major seaports are places like Hamburg and Bremerhaven and Kiel and Lübeck. These are places that are easily bottled up by the Royal Navy and the French. They cannot be reliant on imports in the event of a war, at least imports by sea. Second, if you look at really what ended the First World War for the Germans, they were running out of food more than anything else. The Navy was starving and rioting. You know, if you look at October, November 1918, they were running out of food. So protecting a food supply, a domestic food supply, is hugely important to Germany if they're going to fight another war. So in this context of, all right, we can't import things, we have to produce our own food, what becomes important? Agricultural chemicals, fertilizers, and pesticides. Now, also, you throw in a third context into this, you know, so we have blockades, food supply, throw in another thing, threat to food supplies in the form of entomology, bugs. There's a reason why the first chapter of my book is called The Axis of Weevils. World trade in agricultural commodities becomes a thing in the 19th century. In the 18th century, you go back, agricultural trade around the world was largely luxury goods, sugarcane, rum, stuff like that. You get into the 19th century, it's things like grain and potatoes and stuff like that. Well, wherever the agricultural products go, so go the vermin. So at some point, something called the Colorado potato beetle gets introduced in the port of Bordeaux in France. And the Germans and everybody else in Europe are looking at this chart of Europe. Uh, the progression of this Colorado potato beetle across Europe. And let me tell you, in the 1920s, this potato beetle is about on the French-German border. You take away the potato crop in Germany, you don't fight a war. That's just what it boils down to. So these things combine. These, I don't want to sound like a Marxist, but there is a combination of historical forces here. The momentum of history is pointing towards we can't import things. If we want our food, we lose the war. And there's insects coming. What does that boil down to? That boils down to pesticide research. It boils down to pesticide research in the form of a large program by IG Farben, which by this point is the, uh, frankly, quasi-socialist, not quite state-owned, but very consolidated national chemical monopoly in Germany. It's working on crop protection. And at that point, the great pesticides of the world were all things that were either made from petrochemicals and oil is in short supply, and oil, if you're going to fight another war, is going to be needed by tanks, submarines, aircraft, not for making pesticides. And the other great pesticide of the era was nicotine. But nicotine needs to be dissolved in kerosene to work, and kerosene is a petroleum product. So it's like, oh my God, if we're going to protect the potato crop, protect all the other crops, we've got to get out of petroleum-based products. So a whole other line of inquiry comes in from this new field of chemistry called organophosphates. And phosphate compounds, you know what? Germany doesn't have a huge supply of phosphates, but they're available by rail as opposed by sea. There's also interesting chemistry from fluorine chemistry. And fluorine compounds are possibly useful as pesticides. And Germany has a domestic supply of fluorine from a mineral called feldspar, which they can dig out of the ground. And oddly, the Sudetenland. That's another whole story. <laughs> okay. So, 
All these forces combined to the point in 1935, 1936, some very smart chemists are working in a place called Leverkusen in Germany for IG Farben, working on ways to make pesticides that aren't made out of petroleum products. And lo and behold, one guy, one guy, Gerhard Schroeder, very good chemist, comes across a pesticide that is, honestly, it's too good of a pesticide to use on crops because it kills the farmers as well. It's a substance, later known as taboon, which was the first military nerve agent, that even if you were to dilute it to practically homeopathic type dilution, is still too dangerous for agricultural workers to handle, and it still kills all the aphids, it kills all the beetles, it kills all the ants, it kills everything. And Gerhard Schroeder viewed it as a commercial failure at the time, because it's just too difficult to use agriculturally. Now, by this point, we're talking about December 1936, January 1937. It's not the Weimar Republic, it's the Nazi regime. And all of a sudden, they're very interested in this new compound. And so you get this pull from above saying, you know, you're right, that's not good for agriculture, but maybe there's something else we can do with that. And so that is the birth of nerve agents. Okay, so that makes sense to me now, because you can conduct research into pesticides during that period because you need it to feed your population. And like you say, if you're a country at some point getting ready for a future war and not wanting to be so affected by a blockade that killed hundreds of thousands of Germans, then you need to have effective pesticides. But Dan, tell me, at what point does this fall into Nazi hands? Well... In the late 30s, this was an area of interest for the German government, but not an area that they threw a huge amount of money at. They threw a bit of money at. What changed was the beginning of the war. And I have to say, the nerve agent program, it was a little bit of pulling from above, if you see Berlin and the Nazi government pulling this idea out of industry. But that, I think that's a misinterpretation. It was very much these guys down below particularly the world's worst chemist, Otto Ambrose. And I don't mean he was a bad chemist and technically unqualified. I meant this guy's really evil. And his coterie of executives at IG Farben are pushing this idea up. So there's a little bit of a pull. There's a lot of push. And a lot of that push is mendacious because these guys can see Reichmarks. They can see money on this. Because if it's 1938, Germany is rearming, but everybody has to make their case Krupps has to make their case to rather tight-fisted ministers in Berlin to make their money. Once the actual shooting war starts in September 1939, if you have an idea that's possibly useful for the military, it is a license to print money. And Warsaw hasn't even fallen yet. There is still Polish guys doing cavalry charges when Otto Ambrose, in his very, very nice suit, he was always nicely dressed and always very clean, well-pressed, I have seen his dry cleaning receipts in archives of Q, was there in Berlin to make a case to say, oh, give us a lot of money, we'll give you the miracle weapon. And that's what happened. And I think a lot of things were going on. If you were making submarines, you were getting blank checks. If you were making aircraft, you are getting blank checks. And IG Farben had a number of different commercial wheezes. You know, we're going to make you explosives. We're going to make you all those chemical weapons from the First World War, too, just in case this new one doesn't work. We're going to make you synthetic rubber. We're going to make artificial opiates to replace morphine painkillers. We're going to do all this stuff for you. So I think that there's an entire movie to be made about the descent of mendacious German businessmen onto Berlin in September, October 1939, all walking away with suitcases full of money, all walking away with contracts. And that's the environment out of which... 
IG Farben gets this massive contract to build factories and make nerve agents. I almost don't want to ask, but with these sort of figures in charge, if they're pretty evil businessmen and scientists, what happened as a next step in terms of testing? Where do you start to refine these weapons during a period of active warfare? Well, the German army had a testing range at a place called Raubkammer and a place called uh, Lüneburg Heath, also Munster North. Not the Munster everybody knows, but there's another Munster a little bit further north. And I encountered an odd assumption when I was doing the research for my book that somehow these nerve agents were tested wholesale on concentration camp inmates, for example. And it turns out, oddly speaking, that wasn't actually so much the case. They used a lot of cats and dogs. Even by 1939, there was a surplus of cats and dogs in Germany. I was curious why, and it turns out one of the early bits of the oppression of Jewish people and also the oppression of gypsy people in the Third Reich was they were banned from owning pets. There's this odd book called Animal Welfare in the Third Reich. I had to get to the bottom of this, so I read this book, Animal Welfare in the Third Reich. And so even before the war started, there was a surplus of dogs and cats floating around the Third Reich, whereas guinea pigs and monkeys were expensive, but dogs were effectively free. They had Hitler youth running around, like, policing up stray cats and stray dogs as a public health thing. And once bombing started and people started getting bombed out of their houses and German cities started getting bombed, next thing you know, I mean, stray cats and dogs are, are even cheaper than free in that people are paying money to get rid of them. So a huge amount of cats and dogs were to this place called Raubkammer. Believe it or not, the human research was largely volunteers. And not at the lethal end of things, because people were volunteering to get higher pay, better working conditions, not getting shipped to the Eastern Front or the Western Front or whatever the front you wanted to avoid at the time was. There was a fair bit of that going on. And not to put too fine a point of it, they're truly brutal, highly degraded, subhuman, horrible research on stuff that was going on in concentration camps. That was done by the SS. That wasn't done by the German army. The German army was going to great lengths to keep this nerve agent stuff secret from the SS because we forget how compartmented these totalitarian regimes are and the Nazi regime is no different in its compartmentation than the Soviet Union or North Korea or whoever. So there is a fair bit of compartmentation going there. So if you go down to the National Archives in Kew, there's a lot of captured Nazi documents with lots of literally dead cats marked on the maps and dead dogs. So I'm not sure that is the answer you're looking for, but that is the answer historically. I don't know what answer I was looking for, Dan, but that's the answer you gave, so we're going to have to live with it now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. What did they get out of killing all of these cats and dogs and this limited human experimentation? What was the end product? The end product was about 12,600 tons of the first nerve agent called Tabun. The second nerve agent, Sarin, they didn't quite work out the mass production for, but they built a large arsenal of this very first chemical warfare agent. About 80% of it was filled into aerial drop bombs, and about 20% of it was filled into artillery shells. The aerial drop bombs and the artillery shells worked very well. So from a net standpoint, they ended up with, if you work out the mass, about 250 kilograms of taboon in an aerial drop bomb, only about two kilograms of sarin in a, one of their artillery shells, it worked out to a bazillion weapons, okay? All of which were squirreled away in depots and never saw the light of day. Again, the secrecy of this whole program kept the mainstream military from ever training with these weapons. Sort of 99.99% of the German military was as stunned to find out that these things existed at the end of the war as the Allies. And therein lies a fundamental conundrum because this was an existential conflict. It didn't start out as an existential conflict for Germany, but it ended up as one. And rarely do we see the true end of a state like we did with the Third Reich, truly dismembered and carved up. So it raises the inevitable question, which I know you're going to ask, so I'm just going to preempt it. Why didn't the Germans ever use this stuff? And there's no one answer to that. There's about five or six answers. I do. I do. Tell us the five or six answers. I'm really keen to hear. Uh, I'm going to throw out the obvious answer. The obvious answer, and one that gets obviously quoted a lot, is this idea that Hitler didn't like chemical warfare. Allegedly, Hitler himself was a victim of mustard gas in the First World War. I don't know how much to believe of that or not. And I think Hitler personally did a lot to big up his own military career and make himself out to be a lot more than he actually was. So I don't know how much to view on that. But the other couple of answers, I think, are more compelling. One is the Germans, despite the fact that they had developed this whole new series of chemicals, had an inferiority complex. In particular, the handful of executives who ran this whole 
subset of IG Farben making these things, were fairly well convinced that the Americans, possibly the British, but definitely the Americans, were on to the same sort of thing. And they came to this realization by credible logic, even though it turned out they were wrong. They added two and two and got six. In reality, they should have added two and two and got about three. Neither Britain nor America had nerve agent weapons, but IG Farben knew that the British chemical conglomerate ICI was very big and very advanced. In America, the likes of Monsanto, DuPont, Shell Oil were huge conglomerates doing huge things. And into this whole mix, during the war, you have German intelligence officers in embassies in neutral countries. The three that came up in my research were Buenos Aires, Baron Switzerland, because there a lot of patent applications got filed, and also Stockholm. And these places all had libraries and university libraries that all had subscriptions to all of these journals from America and Britain. And from the minute America entered the war, every single article about pesticides and pesticide research disappeared out of the American technical literature. Now, there was a perfectly good reason for this. It didn't have anything to do with nerve agents. It had everything to do with DDT. Now, DDT is another class of pesticides, different type of chemistry. But America needed DDT to win the war because America are protecting the canal zone. American soldiers are fighting in North Africa. American soldiers are fighting this huge war in the Pacific where mosquitoes are a problem. Yellow fever, dengue, malaria. Historically, these things kill as many soldiers as bullets. And DDT is America's secret weapon to protect American forces. So America is protecting the secret of DDT. Now, DDT existed as a chemical compound. It had been invented in Switzerland. The secret they were trying to prevent getting out wasn't the existence of DDT or its efficacy, but its cheap and economic mass production. So America is shoving DDT into the memory hole, to use an Orwell term. Now, Otto Ambrose, the evil, wicked genius in charge of the nerve agent program, is reading monthly summaries of the technical literature. And not only that, he's writing back to the Abwehr, to the military intelligence, saying, please send your guys to the university libraries. I need to know everything you can about pesticide research. And he's constantly getting a nil return. So he's like, oh. So he assumes, Otto Ambrose assumes, not only assumes, goes and tells Adolf Hitler personally that he thinks that the Allies probably have this. So it becomes a weird case in sort of international security terms of, self-deterrence. The Germans deterred themselves because they thought the other guy had it, even though the other guy didn't have it. So that's the key thing. Now you add into that logistical factors. There's a lot of other reasons why I don't think it would have made a huge difference. By the time they got into mass production of the nerve agents, because it took them a lot longer than they thought, because the initial contract was in 1939, well into 1942, 1943, before mass production, and they're still working on the original contract, so 80% of the nerve agents is going to aerial drop bombs at a point which the Luftwaffe has ceased being an offensive strategic bombing force and is now strictly a protect-the-fatherland fighter force. So there's these bombs, and there aren't any bombers to drop them. There are artillery shells. The artillery shells are all in Germany, but by this point, the entire transportation network is, is under stress, so it would take weeks or months to take these artillery shells and move them out to the front, whichever front you wanted to use. Also bearing to this, the fact that even to the very end of the war, the German army is reliant heavily on horse transport. Think about nerve agents. They absorb through the skin as well as through the track. You, know, you can get a gas mask for a horse, but nobody has a protective suit for the horse. So the Germans are very worried about the vulnerability of their horse transport. 
So all these things add up to, hmm, let's keep this as a retaliatory thing in case the other guys use it, which is where everybody was with chemical weapons in the Second World War. Well, at least in Europe. You get into Japan, China, it's a whole other story, but we can save that for another podcast because that's a whole other thing. Yeah, we'll stick and focus on this story for now because I really want to know what happened to the scientists and, in fact, probably more importantly, what happened to the stockpiles of these thousands, if not millions, of nerve agent bombs? Okay, what you had at the end of the war was, in effect, a rugby scrum between East and West. Both East and West ended up clinching in this rugby scrum and being really, like, shocked and amazed, appalled. What is this stuff? And not only that, because there was an assumed parody, because nobody knew at the time where things were stored and who the scientists were. Both the West and the East assumed that the other side knew as much as they did. Now, in reality, the West knew far more. At the end of the war, the West was holding four out of the five cards, largely because the majority of the stockpile during the last months of the war was moved north and west to keep it away from the Russians. I think some of that has to do with this sort of what we now think of as a fairly infantile belief among the German high command that eventually, maybe, possibly, they can negotiate a separate peace in the West and keep fighting the Russians. We know that that was part of the whole rationale behind the plot to kill Hitler. So there wasn't any real push to keep this stuff away from the West. There was a hell of a lot of a push to keep it away from the East. So what you have is the majority of the stuff goes West. However, the two factories... One factory fully built and another factory partially built are in the east, and they get captured. Now, the West doesn't know the extent to which these facilities were demolished, and they assumes the worst. The Soviets basically have a pile of demolished factories in one fake notebook. You know, okay, all right, okay, you know, we don't have much here. The majority of the personnel flee west. The scientists, the engineers, they all flee west. With one exception, I really wonder about this one exception, what happened to this guy, Von Bock, how he ended up in the east. And he ended up not as a prisoner, but he ended up as paid labor in the Soviet Union. He was quite salaried. So what you have is, let's look at the inventory of what everybody had one year after the war. One year after the war, the Soviet Union has basically one scientist that's worth anything. One. Just the one guy. A couple other scientists know a bit, but are miscategorized. And they get put to work on uranium refinement, which is viewed to be more important, actually, given the whole nuclear arms race. A barrel full of documents in the salt mine, which they found. I, I don't even know when they found it. It's quite possible this barrel full of documents in the salt mine they might have found years later. I don't know. They have two mostly demolished laboratories. They have a bunch of basically convict labor who doesn't know much. These guys all know one job. I just know I turn this one wrench. I just do this one valve. A little bit of the chemical weapons stuff. A few, I mean, like a few gallons here and there of the nerve agent. That's what they have. The West has most of the bombs, most of the artillery shells. It's got all the scientists minus one and a ton of the paperwork. However, they still have this inferiority complex, assuming that the other side has got the factories. And this entire situation frames the entire Cold War up until the 1980s, where both sides think the other side is further ahead. Right, so this sparks a nerve agent arms race. Well, it does. And not only that, there's a bifurcation in the West. So we talked about 12,600 tons of taboo in the first nerve agent. 
most of which ends up either in cargo pallets stacked in a place called Edgewood, Maryland, or in cargo pallets stacked in an airfield in Wales, where this stuff was just kept as a hedge. This is our standby arsenal in case we have to have World War III tomorrow and need this nerve agent. We haven't had mass production yet. Britain and America are looking at this and saying, well, this is an okay nerve agent, but the next nerve agent, sarin, this is the real business. The Germans had figured out how to do sarin on a benchtop level, hadn't quite cracked the problem for mass production. Sarin is 10 times more potent than taboon, evaporates more quickly, so it's more rapidly acting. Both East and West are engaged in this race to try to make sarin first, and are assuming the other guy already got there. America assumes the worst, assumes that the Soviet Union is mass-producing sarin because the Soviet Union captured the sarin factory at Falkenhagen. The problem is the sarin factory at Falkenhagen, A, was mostly demolished, B, wasn't going to work anyway because they were following the wrong path. Sarin is a devilishly difficult chemical to make. But, you know, you think about this, it's such a hard chemical that even with full debriefing of the scientists that knew how to make it on a benchtop level, it took America seven years, hundreds of PhD chemists and chemical engineers, hundreds of millions of dollars to go from that basis to actually opening up the valve and starting to produce it on a mass basis in Colorado in 1952. And it wasn't until the late 50s, 1957, 1958, before the Russians were able to do the same. So there was a lot of effort to try to catch up to each other. So this weapon then starts to spread around the world when? Because sarin is perfected by the US and then the Soviet Union, but then it's used by state and non-state actors. So basically what you get is you could trace the family tree of sarin to really only two things, either the eastern bit or the western bit. The western bit has got three branches to it. It's got the Americans, it's got the British, and it's got the French. The French program was always a little bit independent, still a little bit inscrutable. While America and Britain were running around making the sarin, the French actually made taboon and then developed the sarin a little bit later on. And there, that side of the family tree mostly dies off. Britain decides to get out of the game in the late 50s because post-Suez, Britain's broke. Sarin's expensive. Their pilot plant in a place called Nanskuk in Cornwall is ruinously expensive, is problematic. And so there's this great inter-allied agreement saying, all right, Americans, you do the offensive stuff. We'll focus on defensive research. And the Canadians and the Australians, they'll give us test areas so we can test this stuff. So that was kind of the agreement. The French did their own thing. And so the other branch of the family is the Soviet branch. And the Soviet branch goes to places like China, North Korea, Egypt under Nasser. And then there is this funny little dotted line branch around the end of this, which is Tito in Yugoslavia. Now, Tito made sarin. He got a little bit of the information from the West and a little bit from the East. I never quite figured out exactly where, because... If you look at the history of Yugoslavia and the Cold War, it varied quite. It swung west, it swung east, it swung west, it swung east. There was this critical period of time in the late 1950s where Yugoslavia was actually quite on the western side. A lot of Yugoslav military officers were attending training in the U.S. This had as much to do with Tito's personal idiosyncrasies as anything else. Tito viewed President Eisenhower as a personal friend. He also viewed Haile Selassie, probably the least communist guy you can think of as a personal friend, too. Went lion hunting in a loincloth in Ethiopia. There's great photos for that, I think, you know. So Tito sent his officers to the West and sent some of them to U.S. Army chemical warfare training in 
1959, at exactly the point at which the U.S. has perfected how to make sarin. The evidence is circumstantial, but some of the other circumstantial evidence is in 1960, the Yugoslavs come out with a gas mask for the Yugoslav army that's an exact copy of the American one at the time. So, yeah, and it took them a long time. It was probably another 10 years before they perfected how to make sarin from that point. But then you get to the 1970s and Yugoslavia is big in what's called the non-aligned movement, where he's really trying to be in this bit between East and West. And all of a sudden, Egyptians, Iraqis, Syrians, Iranians are all being trained in places like the Military Chemical Warfare School in Zagreb in Yugoslavia. So there's this whole Yugoslav connection that is not well documented. I've only sort of come up on whispers and hints and the aroma of this. So if you're to draw out a family tree, there's two big branches. That's the Western branch, the Eastern branch. There's this weird branch on the dotted line in the middle of the Yugoslavs. And when you get to non-state actors, it's really only one branch. That's the Alm cult. And they got most of that from the Russians because they spent a lot of money, spent cash money to buy plans and formulae and all that from corrupt Russians in the early 1990s. So there's a provenance to this family tree of knowledge. I mean, that is fascinating and disturbing. And you call it a family tree and perhaps technically would call it this uncontrolled proliferation of nerve agent technologies to array of actors that lead to some of the most despicable attacks on civilians throughout the 20th and even into the 21st century, right? Exactly. And the thing is, you can look at any use of nerve agents, as far as I'm concerned, any of these uses of nerve agents, where it's Navalny being poisoned in his hotel room before he gets on an airplane, or the Skripals or Dawn Sturgis in Salisbury, the Aum Shinrikyo attack in Tokyo, and there was a lesser-known attack by the same group in Matsumoto the previous year, the stuff in Syria. You can work this stuff backwards, and it all goes back. There's a clear lineage. You can work the... If this is virology, we would call it phylogeny. You can work the phylogeny backwards on this stuff. You follow the family tree of the knowledge, and they follow the chain of handshakes. Where did the knowledge from one to the other, the other, the other go? And it all goes back to December 1936 and a guy named Gerhard Schroeder in Germany. The thing is, it seems obvious to me, that's only because I've steeped myself in this stuff for years. It doesn't seem obvious to anybody else. It just seems obvious to me. We would not be talking about nerve agents at all if the Nazis hadn't spent a huge amount of trouble and time and effort, tens of thousands of people and the equivalent of tens or if not you know, more billions of dollars in current time to break the problem of nerve agents. They spent a lot of effort over the period of sort of 1937 to 1945 cracking this problem. If they hadn't spent that effort, we wouldn't be having this discussion. This would be a, a best of footnote in history. Dan, thank you so much, because I know there is no one else out there who could have so clearly put together this complex history into such a well-formed tapestry. But I've got to ask you something before you go. For our listeners in Maryland and in Wales, please tell me that those stockpiles are now gone and disarmed. Gone. The ones in Wales went, dare I say it, into the sea northwest of Ireland 60 years ago. The stuff in Maryland, gone. There is a soup sawn, a little bit of nerve agent left in Kentucky under OPCW inspection. It should have been gone a long time ago. Technical delays, contractual delays, all that, but it is all going to a um, safe end. I'm not sure I'm reassured by the fact that the British tipped theirs into the sea, but thank you anyway, Dan. 
One final thing, where can people read more about the history of nerve agents? Well, I've got this book out. If you're in the UK, go to Hearst Publishers, H-U-R-S-T, or find me on Amazon, uh, Dan Kazita, K-A-S-Z-E-T-A. I will be out in early 2021 with Oxford University Press in North America. If you can't wait, Hearst will sell you a copy and send it to you at a little bit of a markup. And hopefully I'll be out on audio very soon with Tantor Media. There's also on Amazon, you can find a Kindle version of my book. Dan, thank you so much. Can't wait to have you back on the podcast again soon. All right. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.